listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to read the gospel that the Church selects for the baptism of the Lord, which is Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 to 16 and 21 to 22. It has a deep background to it, which we might want to look at before we launch into the narrative itself. And the deep background is is that baptism, which is, of course, the focus of this gospel, is an ancient tradition and an ancient practice. I mean, there's, a, there's such a natural connection between a change in a way of life and the pouring of water and the cleansing of a person that it's not surprising at all that many places employ various forms of the ritual of baptism when they're talking about transformation of the human person. And so we shouldn't be surprised that John is in the, is in the desert baptizing before there is a sacrament of baptism, and before Christ himself dwells in the midst of the sacramental action that takes place. And so the, the gospel wants us, once we have understood that baptism is a, is a common practice, certainly it was common with the Essenes as rites of initiation when someone had so repented and so come through a conversion process that it was clear that uh, they had disposed their hearts, their inner selves, to kind of accept the life of, of the Essenes and, uh, and to commit themselves to living it. Um, and that was true, too, of, of other sects and other practices within Judaism and within the pagan world as well. But the Gospel says, that they said there's a particular aura that's surrounding this event, and the gospel says a feeling of expectancy had grown among the people who were beginning to think that John might be the Christ. That there was in this era a tremendous feeling of expectancy, which is why the crowds went out from Jerusalem to listen to John. Because John seemed to be speaking of something imminent. He seemed to be speaking of something that was about to happen. And the people were kind of crowding around him to hear that they might catch some kind of a glimpse of what they're looking for, of what they're hoping for. Um, They know that they're hoping for a Messiah. They have no idea who the Messiah will be. The majority of them um, think of the Messiah, basically, as someone who will be a great leader to Israel, the new David, the one who will come and... uh, free Israel from the bondage of the Roman Empire, um, who will begin to lead the people of Israel and establish a great kingdom like David established and be able, therefore, to conquer his enemies and to kind of be one of the major rulers, if not the major ruler, in the whole known world to them. And so they said, well, maybe this powerful creature who came out of the desert Maybe this powerful man who's associated in some way with the ascetical Essenes and who is certainly well-versed in the prophets and extremely well-versed in the, in, the prophets of, uh, in the prophecies of Isaiah, perhaps this is the one we're waiting for. Perhaps, you know, we had it wrong as far as the, uh, as far as the great soldier, the great leader goes. Um, and so 
John declared before them all, knowing what was going on, realizing that the uniqueness of his presence in the Jordan had uh, stimulated all sorts of speculation about himself. But so he says to this crowd, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming, someone who is more powerful than I, and I am not fit to undo the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John responds to this, this false expectation concerning himself. And so what he, what he really then wants to do is, um, is dispel the rumors that he is the Messiah, dispel the rumors that he is somehow or other the prophet who is to return, most of whom thought was going to be Elijah. And instead he says, there's someone coming who's more powerful than I. And then he wants to make sure that they know he is far greater than he is. It was a, it was a servant's, a slave's um, task to un, undo the sandals of his master when he came in. Um, then John says, I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy of that. And he said, so I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the one who's coming after me. And then he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Both of those designations indicating the presence of the divine, that certainly we are to see the Holy Spirit manifest um, over the baptism of Jesus, and we are to know that the fire in Pentecost is the fire of God's power and God's presence of the Holy Spirit in the apostolic community. Um, so we know all that is coming, but John knows it too. He knows that somehow or other, that what who is coming after him has a special connectivity to the living God, um, and he also knows that uh, that he will baptize too, but in a deeper, more profound way. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There is a divine consequence to his baptism whereas there is only a human consequence to John's baptism. John's baptism, the human consequence, is the repentance of heart. Jesus' baptism is the indwelling of the, of, of the Holy Spirit and of fire for the faith. So that John has now made a dramatic and a sweeping um, pronouncement about his baptism. He's saying that what is to come is so much greater than what I can offer you that in a way kind of wait and see and hold off on your enthusiasm until you see the real thing happen. Now when the people had been baptized and while Jesus after his own baptism was at prayer, so here we find in Luke's gospel that Jesus himself came to John and Jesus himself was baptized. and. Um, that he, in so doing, he formed a bond, a solidarity with the crowds. He had something much more to offer and was in no need of repentance of sin. And yet at the same time, he desired a solidarity with those who were open to the fact of a Messiah and those who were crowded with the expectant crowds around John the Baptist. But while he was at prayer, the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily shape like a dove. And so while Jesus is praying after his own baptism, the very thing that John was talking about begins to take place. And a dove descends over the Lord and, uh, 
and we can imagine the tremendous burst of light and so forth that comes from the source of all light and that rests, in fact, then over the Lord Jesus. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, my favor rests on you. And so here we are again now, the fire and the Holy Spirit, the presence of the divine, which is the voice of the Father, saying, you are my son, and behold, my favor rests on you. And so the very person that John begins to introduce to the, to the Jews who are gathering in great crowds and suspecting that he might be Elijah returned has pointed his finger elsewhere, called Jesus forth into baptism, where Jesus has presented himself for baptism over John's objections. And once John does perform the baptism on the Lord, then baptism is transformed and baptism is transformed to become an encounter with the divine and not just an encounter with ourselves, not just an encounter with our own inadequacies within us and not, uh, and not within a, uh, a uh, kind of a, a personal conversion experience, that this is from beyond us, this is from outside of us, and this is a very, very powerful experience in the life of a, of a person. For having been baptized, they now have received the Spirit of God and the fire of God. And it dwells within them and it pulsates within them. A new order of life and a new order of being. We get the tendency sometime now, we place a tremendous amount of emphasis on baptism. And in placing that tremendous amount of, of emphasis on baptism, what we, what we end up doing is we make it kind of the, uh, the primordial sacrament of all other sacraments. And in many ways, of course, without it, we have no entree to the other sacraments. But it is not just an inauguration into a cult. And I don't use the word cult in a modern pejorative sense. I use the word cult in the sense of, of in the sense of worship, and and, and in the sense of, uh, of um, a form of, of a ritual form of prayer that uh, that Christianity has always espoused. And so, basically, then it forms. It draws us into the cult of, of, of Christianity, into the, into the structure and the form of Christianity. And in so doing, and in so doing, it draws us then also closer to Jesus Christ and open our hearts and our souls to his coming, to the indwelling of the Father. Here we find the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all participants in the moment of baptism, all participants in the establishment of the sacramental nature of baptism. And, and I think, that, uh, I think that, that we should ponder that and we should, we should pray about that some because we have tended to make it not so much a place of, rece of receiving the indwelling of the, of the Christ, of the Father and the Spirit, but but we tend to have seen it again as some kind of a, a, a ritual inauguration. And, uh, and I think we have to be very careful of seeing it as only that. 
It's the reason, for instance, I think, that uh, many people wait so long to have their child baptized um, that there, there doesn't seem to be this urgency. Um, but the urgency is, how long should you wait before you allow your child to be dwelt inside of by the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? There is, during the 14th century, a, a, a wave of, of mystic writers who come to understand this whole relationship that we have with God as the indwelling, and he calls it even the indwelling of the Holy, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Trinity, Jan van Roosbroek, the, uh, the, the Dutch mystic, um, certainly understood that the whole Trinity dwells within us. Um, he, he doesn't so much go back and exegete the, the baptismal texts of the New Testament, but certainly this is what this text in Luke is showing to us, that present immediately upon Jesus' baptism are the Father and the Spirit, and he himself being the Son. It is a grand, I suppose we could say, a phenomenal reunion of the Trinity that takes place in, in the sacramental baptism that Jesus is to espouse and to practice. And the result of it is that those children that emerge from the sprinkled waters um, of, of, of the baptismal font emerge as vessels of God, as, and, and emerge as those who contain within them the Trinity, deep within them. And for the rest of their existence, the rest of their lives, they will be able to travel deep inside of themselves if they are so disposed in order to encounter the Trinity and come to know the, Fa the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because in the waters of baptism, that becomes their inheritance, their gift. And it becomes your gift and mine as well. How we, how we nurture that or how we tend to ignore that is our business. But it is the opportunity to encounter the living God. And this is something Roosbrook is extremely, extremely um, taken by. And he is extremely adamant about the nature of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity and those who believe. So that when, in fact, we go back then and we look at the story of the baptism of the Lord, it's more direct than just, you know, it's more direct than just who is the author. Um, you know, the author of, of baptism in pre-Jesus um, days is, is the cult to which the, that, practice, that practices this baptism. And by cult, once I mean, again, I mean a formal worshiping community and not some kind of crazy fringe group like we think of them as. Um, so, that, so that when we find then that these different groups, these different sects, who do in fact baptize as a sign of inauguration and as a sign of, uh, of repentance, um, unfortunately much of some of modern catechesis at least takes this up. And in taking this up, interprets our own baptism in exactly the same way that the age interpreted the the uh, in, interpreted the baptism the baptism of John, and uh, and I think that that's an unfortunate way of catechesis for it. What it does, the one of the one of the great struggles we have, and one of the great problems we have, 
it's 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 very hard in our society to realize the depth of the relationship between God and his people and we 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 tend to make it simply an intentional connection we tend to make it simply that uh, you know God created us all and uh, and and subtly in the back of our minds we take a kind of uh, an Augustinian seminal uh, origin view of of human existence that uh, that somehow God simply kind of plants the seed and then we we grow like topsy and uh, and that 's not true that God creates us yes that 's for sure which establish, which establishes an irreversible and an unbreakable bond between ourselves and him. That bond is so much closer than a bond with a mother or father that, uh, that, that we, we fail sometimes. We, do, we, just don't, we just don't want to dive beneath the surface. We, we want a manageable world. We want a world that makes you know, infinite practical sense to us. And so that's why often in the history of Christianity, the whole idea of the Christ turns to an ethical figure. We saw that in spades in the in the in the sixties and seventies, building in churches with uh, stained glass windows with Karl Rahner in them and Mahatma Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and so forth. Who is Jesus in that? Jesus is kind of lifted up as a liberator, kind of lifted up as a uh, as a uh, a great moral or ethical leader of some kind. The mystery of his being is completely ignored in that kind of iconography. And uh, the mystery of his being is simply diminished by equating him with so many others of goodwill and of, of great public talent. We, we, can't, we can't just keep doing that. That Jesus is God. And that he, it is through him, John tells us, that everything came to mean we take our very life, our very sustenance, our very substance of our inner self from Jesus Christ. And that everything we do and everything we say is in some way related to him. And the ability to do so is his ability within us to do so. And here at the baptism, the, the Father and the Spirit make it clear. They come and arrive in the same event in order that, in order that the world can see that this is the triune being who comes to us at our baptism. There's great debate among the scholars. Did, was John the Baptist hear this proclamation? Was this something there for the crowds, or was this something just simply that Jesus himself experienced? We have no idea, and we never will have any idea. We weren't there. But the, the, but the gospel lends the, us to believe that it is known that it is not simply a private revelation to Jesus who somehow or other Luke found out about and, and, and wrote about. No, it is an event that actually took place. The Spirit, the Father, and the Son become the key elements in the foundational principle of the, sacramental, of the sacrament of baptism. And that in, in fact, this moment, when baptism is changed from a ritual 
um, inauguration ceremony into an encounter with the living God, with the living triune God. And I would, I would encourage people to, to find a copy of Jan von Rysbrook's uh, The Indwelling of the Trinity and, and to try and, try and read it and ponder over it and see the depths that the man goes to, the depths of his own experience has led him to. He's not the only one. Um, there's a whole spate of them. But he's, he's the one that, that is more closely identified with the Trinitarian notion of the indwelling of God. And that's something that is extremely, extremely important for us. The, the other thing that we might want to look at in all of this is that these things seem to happen among the faithful who have a sense of something great going to take place. And so a feeling of expectancy had grown among the people. And so they were willing to, to jump to conclusions in order to bring the fulfillment, that which they had awaited, that which they had hoped for. Many, many of them, as we know, is going to be disappointed when the time does, in fact, arrive. Because he's not going to be the great king or the great general. He's going to be the humble servant of God, as he is portrayed, certainly, in the prophecies of, of Isaiah. And in this, of course, too, he becomes, in a way, the humble servant. He is the one bowed down before the, the awe and the mystery of the, of the coming of the Spirit and the coming of the Father into the baptismal moment of this gospel. And in so doing, then, he becomes the, he becomes the Messiah that God has sent to us that is such a crushing disappointment to so many people that, in fact, in their disappointment, they decide to kill him. And I think that this is true through the history of the Church. I think of uh, St. Edmund Campion, for instance, um, who was a favorite of Queen Elizabeth at court because of his brilliance and his cleverness and all of that, and that he failed her. He became Catholic and became a Jesuit, and she killed him. Um, we, we find this with so many of the martyrs that they are a disappointment. We find that with the modern church, people turning away from the modern church because of the sinfulness that exists among our members. And then without seeing what the church is, that it is the instrument through which God communicates with his people, the instrument through which God comes into the life of his people. And yet it has disappointed many people. It has disappointed on a large scale and on a personal scale. And the idea, therefore, is to abandon it in an attempt to destroy it. And uh, because we are disappointed in it. And uh, disappointment is one of the great experiences of religion. Um, you know, it's interesting. You can read about the mystics, put the book down, and think, now I'm going to have a mystical experience. And you're very disappointed because chances are you're not going to have a, myst um, a mystical experience. And so then what was the purpose of reading it all if you hadn't, in fact, come um, and to experience something about what you had already read. So disappointment um, riddles religion and riddles the faith with its, with its sharp edges. 
and it does weaken and it does it does lend credibility to the to the negative forces around it and uh, and it does in fact encourage the the kind of dysfunction that we have within it the constant talking about and the constant harping upon the personal failures of people within the church heinous as they may be that it nevertheless does not in any way shape or form um, detract or distract from the authenticity of holy lives which are led by the millions in the church I think as a, as a parish priest, what you begin to find out is that the world is filled with saints and, uh, and saints who live heroic and noble lives. And, uh, and, and so we, we, we lose heart because of the few who are emphasized and the few because of our large numbers, the few of us are also a large number. And so we, we do have a problem overcoming what appears to us to be a pervasive a pervasive evil within the church but it is not the pervasive truth of the church is the community of saints and i think that we we find that living at this living as we do at this closeness proximity to the mass and to the the blessed sacrament and so forth we know that the world is filled is filled with those who have resisted the great temptation, those who have remained faithful, and those who are saintly men and women. We also know that we can't canonize all Christians, and even those who are saintly have, have faults. Um, so even when you, you go to church and you sit next to someone and you know their fault, you might not know their virtue, and you might not know the depth of the faith that lies within them. And you might be surprised at what you would find out if you got to know them closer, if you got to know them more, more, more deeply. So today, when we look at the story of the baptism of the Lord, we come to know and to understand that there is a great transition that takes place. That which was an inauguration now becomes a mystical encounter between the living human being and the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that they enter into us and they conform our lives to that who, to whom they are, um, to the best to the best of the uh, power and ability of grace, leaving us always the freedom to reject them, which many unfortunately do. But the baptism that we have received is the baptism of the Lord and not the baptism of John. And in receiving the baptism of the Lord, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. And as we do so, we live constantly with the source of our own faith, and we live constantly with the ability to reach deep inside of ourselves and find there some truth about the living God who is there within us, sanctifying us and drawing us toward eternal life. Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. Veni Sancti. 